Welcome to the International Power Hour. This is Jean Abshire. I'm here as usual with my co-host Cliff Staten. Good morning, Cliff. Good morning, Jean. How are you today? Very well, thank you. I'm in the in this brave new world that we're we're in. Uh, you know, historians <laughs> oh, are going to historians are going to write about this for a long, long time. Um, it is uh, certainly unlike. Obviously, uh, any, unlike anything I've experienced, um, you know, I mean, a pandemics, global pandemics are uh, something that are is are relevant to international relations. We talked about that a few weeks ago, um, and uh, so it's it's not like the fact that uh, epidemiologists predicted a global pandemic for years and knew it was a question of when, not if. When, not if. That's correct. Yes, but actually experiencing it is different than imagining it. <laughs> That's true. And uh, of course, as you and I know, with the tremendous coverage of it, it kind of pushes the air out of other events going on in the world that are pretty significant, right? I, I feel like pushing the air out <laughs> might be an understatement. I, I'm willing to just own it and, and, and tell our listeners that when we decided last week to do this episode of uh, you know, news forum, not coronavirus edition, uh, the, you know, when we sat down to talk about topics, it was like, well, what else has gone on in the world? <laughs> That's <laughs> and, true. Uh, you know, that's it, true. It took a little so, thinking. So why don't we go ahead and uh, the um, Trump administration has been dealing with North Korea from almost day one. So, and in the last month, uh, North Korea has been in the news quite a bit. Yes. Would you like? <laughs> would you like to uh, talk about event, recent events in North Korea? North Korea. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'm sure our listeners will recall that um, President Trump did, after a, a very, um, uh, you know, kind of a hostile or aggressive and in, in rhetoric uh, start with North Korea, um, uh, then had the big summit in Singapore and came to an agreement with um, Kim Jong-un, the chairman of, of the party in North Korea. And, uh, you know, it was supposed to, supposed to work toward uh, ending North Korea's nuclear program and turning over a whole new leaf and uh, we thought that that would mean, or the goal was, I should say, there were a lot of skeptics, um, but the goal was to have North Korea stop making um, the sort of efforts that it had been making in terms of um, offensive weapons. And what has, I think, not captured a lot of attention in this very competitive uh, news market is that March 2020 was the single busiest month for missile testing in North Korea's history. Um, there were uh, uh, four events where they tested short-range ballistic missiles. Uh, nine missiles were launched during the month of March. Um, so, so for our listeners, short-range, we're talking probably three to 900-mile range. Not even that. Like that. Actually, the last, the last uh, launch test, which was March 28th, 
Um, they there were two missiles uh, launched, and they um, went 143 miles at an altitude of about 19 miles. So this clearly poses a real threat to South Korea and Japan and Japan. Yes, those two. Yeah, and of course we have um, you know longstanding um, and very codified commitments to defense commitments. Yes, yes, to protecting both both South Korea and Japan. So this is a thing. Um, March has conventionally been kind of a busier month um, for North Korean military activities. They often have in the past had a little a little lull during the winter months. Plus, um, the spring has also been a time when the U.S. and South Korea have had really large joint um, training operations. And so North Korea would, would very commonly in March um, also have military exercises and various things as sort of a response to the U.S.-South Korean joint efforts. But of course, part of President Trump's, uh, you know, trade-offs to North Korea to you know, give them something for supposedly uh, coming on board with limiting their programs was he ended these joint military exercises. So those have not happened since uh, 2018. And that 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 is significant because uh, oh, gosh, yeah. military preparedness, uh, you know, they go through routines, the what if scenarios, uh, North Korea does yeah. this, how do we respond? And if you don't practice that over and over and over, uh, as we've learned with this pandemic, um, you know, it, it can create major, major problems. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, and that's been on on hiatus. And so the, you know, this the smoothness of operations, the, um, you know, the interconnectedness that um, that can kind of potentially at least be weakened by these lack of lack of drills and practices. Um, North Korea also this spring has had initially in, in January and then again just within the last uh, few weeks has also hinted um, in response actually to the U.S. Uh, making a statement. Um, Secretary Pompeo made a statement in, at a NATO meeting uh, urging countries to maintain sanctions on North Korea. North Korea's response was that, that there would be a payback for that. And, and various things that they've said right. in the last few months um, have led a lot of analysts to think that it's there's a fair chance that they are planning either a long-range uh, missile test or another nuclear test. And that's that will really push the Trump administration because those were those were lines that were not supposed to be crossed in this uh, you know detente between Trump and Kim Jong Un, <clears throat> and uh, you know some people thought the the, the short range missile, missile tests also shouldn't have been allowed, but Trump has has chosen to look away on those because they don't directly threaten uh, U.S. territory, though they do again threaten South Korea and Japan. But if they went ahead and did long-range missile tests or another nuclear test, that would be um, another issue. Another interesting thing that, that was reported in, in Newsweek just yesterday, actually, um, and uh, it's it's uh, it was about a report from a non-proliferation researcher. Um, a woman uh, by the name of Margaret Croy, who seems to have pretty decent credentials. Um, she uh, 
has done research on something that I didn't know was a thing. Um, apparently, you can produce nuclear material. You can extract uranium from phosphate fertilizer. Phosphate fertilizer, okay. Yes. I, I'm, um, I'm not enough of a scientist to tell you that, but I, oh, I was either. not aware of that. <laughs> wow. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Totally, this was, I had, I had not... I mean, this stuff is not my area of expertise um, at all, but um, apparently that is a thing. Apparently it is something that has been done um, by countries with clandestine nuclear projects. Um, Again, I don't understand uh, the logistics, but apparently it is possible. And North Korea in the, uh, official interest of enhancing their agricultural production has apparently put a lot of uh, time, effort, and energy into um, building phosphate fertilizer factories. Wow. Okay. And so... uh, There's some intelligence then arguing that they're using this somehow to... It's more of a circumstantial argument that it's something that um, was probably not on our radar previously, but it's something that that should be watched and monitored um, because uh, it it could be a thing, but we don't know it's a thing. But I didn't even know. I had never heard that you could extract uranium from phosphate fertilizer, but apparently it is a legitimate thing. That's interesting. I, I, that's that's new to me as well, and it's yeah. also a bit disconcerting, quite honestly, uh, to put it mildly. Um, given well, given the, the status of some of the regimes worldwide and their desires, and some of those have apparently tried it. Yeah. Yeah, that might wow. be something for a future show if we can find somebody who knows something about that. Uh, we we need a, uh, uh, I guess, a chemist, chemist plant biologist. Some, some, uh, I don't know. Um, okay, but that we'll yeah. have to think about that. I lack the, I lack the expertise, um, but um, it's just again, it was uh, it's the the evidence is just um, you know circumstantial at best um, that they could potentially be. Uh, you know, using this to advance their nuclear program, but apparently the 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 ability is there, and so um, it would be something that the U.S. might want to keep an eye on. Right, right. Okay. okay. So, um, Cliff, I was uh, I did leave my house last week uh, <laughs> to go get allergy shots. That's about the only reason I've left. Um, but as I was as I was driving down the street, I saw gas prices. <laughs> Gas prices that I have, uh, I, I feel like. It's been a while, right? Years, yes. (laughs) I was uh, shocked because I thought they were low the last time I got gas, which was, you know, just at the very start of of lockdown. Um, And they were much, much lower (laughs) even still then. So what's been going on with our oil prices? Well, actually, prices have been kind of have begun on a, been on a downward trend since about 2013 2014 maybe even before that yeah um, <clears throat> but you're right 
uh, I've been out a couple times and filled up my car and I'm, you know, even in Florida where you have quite a few taxes on gasoline because there's no income state tax here. Uh, <clears throat> gasoline is cheap. And then if I go into Georgia and Alabama, let me tell you, there's a, the average right now is $2 per gallon. And we haven't seen that in a long time. Uh, I saw but, it for a buck 69. Well, I saw on social media <clears throat> a picture of a gas station in New Orleans, 87 cents a gallon. Oh my God! Now it has been a long, long time <laughs> <clears throat> since I've seen that. So, oh my gosh, yeah. So it, it's a good question. Uh, you know, the price Oof. for barrel of oil today is right around twenty dollars, which is uh, also just stunning. Which you know, uh, it it peaked in two thousand, I think two thousand six, at one hundred and ten dollars a barrel. And has, but the dramatic decline has just been in the last two months. Okay. So that's what I want to yeah. kind of focus on. Uh, I mean, clearly. I remember when it used to live in the 20s, but yeah. like mid to upper 20s. Right. And, uh, you know, there was a time when you thought you couldn't go much higher than that. But obviously, uh, we've been existing much, much higher than that for, for years now. But yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. just stunning. Well, so yeah, tell so us more. Kind of, uh, uh, and, and I don't know if we've actually covered this in a, in a, on, on, on our show before, but maybe just some basic information to help uh, our listeners understand uh, the global yeah. oil market. Uh, <clears throat> There are several things to kind of keep in mind. Number one is that Saudi Arabia and Russia are the largest exporters of oil in the world. Okay. They really yeah. can, by cutting back or increasing oil production, they can affect the price of oil. Okay. Just, just by themselves. Okay. Now of the two, the actual cost of getting oil out of the ground, it's much cheaper in Saudi Arabia. Okay, it's more it's more costly in Russia. Okay, why is that? Well, a lot of it has to do with where the Russian oil fields are located through frozen tundra and so on. And then Saudi Arabia, literally, you put a stick in the ground and out pops oil. Okay, it's just cheap. I, mm -hmm. Not literally, but I think you understand what yeah. I'm saying. Here, okay, <laughs> um, so that's one point to remember. A second point: the Chinese economy is the largest importer of oil in the world more than 10 million barrels a day when the Chinese economy is healthy. Now, that kind of plays into the coronavirus thing, as you might imagine. And then finally, uh, for those of you listening, oil tends to go through boom-bust cycles. So yes. there's a period when demand increases, more and more oil producers get in the game because the price is high. They can make money, especially producing oil where it's expensive. Like think about the cost of, of an oil platform in, in the North Sea or in the Gulf of Mexico. This is really expensive oil, and you can only do it when the price is high. Or think of a shale oil production in Texas. In other words, this is really expensive, okay? Shale so, oil is basically when you're, when you're squeezing oil out of a particular um, kind of rock called shale, of, right? That's correct, yes. Yeah, yes, yes. so that's, um, yeah, like that... It's not, it's, it's like, it's almost as far from just sticking a hole in the ground or stick in the ground and get, have oil come out. Like that, sh getting oil it, out of shale rock, it, it, that requires. It's expensive. Okay. Yeah. So you have these 
So in other words, to put it in, in economic terms, oil is capital intensive. To produce it, it takes a lot of money up front, meaning that the reward, potential reward, has to be there. So as price goes up, more and more uh, firms get in the business where it's expensive to get oil. Ultimately, though, as you might imagine, you see the boom-bust cycle here. Too much oil is produced, oil falls, and the industries that of all the energy producers that are hurt the most are the ones where it's expensive to deal with. Okay, now that's kind of uh, you want to keep that in mind too, because we're in a kind of an oil bust cycle, and which oil companies are saying let the market ride it out, and which oil companies are saying are telling asking President Trump to do something. Okay, mm -hmm. you, you can keep that in mind as well. Now, so. Uh, and again, I don't want to go into a long history of boom-bust cycles, but you know, in general terms, the 1970s was a boom cycle. The early to mid-80s through the 90s was a bust cycle. And then you had a boom cycle from about 2000 to about 2013 or 14, or some people would date it 2010. And since then, we've been kind of a slide towards a bust cycle but so just to make it clear to listeners basic when you say a boom cycle that's i mean the price of oil is high oil companies boom for so the that's oil bad companies. for us yeah <laughs> Consumers, us trying yes. to fill our tanks so <laughs> that's a, I'm the, sorry, way, the yes. way we see it in our heads like oh I, i'm going bust because it's booming for the oil yeah yeah, yeah. that you, you, the oil companies write this literature <laughs> yeah. so yeah okay so i think i think you get the picture here so if we look at today, then, what is exacerbating this kind of long bust cycle, lower prices, is actually the coronavirus pandemic. That's affected the global economy. It's affected global demand. And think of China. This is you know, uh, literally millions laid off work, companies not producing anymore, and they've reduced the amount of, and they're the largest importer of oil. So that has affected uh, the amount of oil. In other words, we've got basically an oil glut or a surplus of oil. So the coronavirus has played a role in slowing down the global economy and the demand for oil, in addition to the typical market up and down thing that, that we usually see. Now, enter oil producers. I was going to say, isn't there something going on between Russia and Saudi Arabia? Yes, 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 yes. Um, you know, when many people think of uh, the oil economy, think of OPEC, okay? Right. OPEC. Which is a cartel, the... Uh, Oil, petroleum, exporting countries. Okay, the organization of petroleum exporting, petroleum countries, exporting okay? countries. Yeah, I always want to say consisting producers. of uh, oil producers like Saudi Arabia, Venezuela. Okay, there's about um, I forgot the last count, but nonetheless, now you mentioned the word cartel. Maybe we we'll have to explain that to, to, to our listeners. A cartel, the oil cartel first became famous or infamous, <laughs> however you want to look at it, in the 1970s when they were a, uh, they had the OPEC at that time controlled enough of the supply so that they, if they could cut back on the supply, the price would go up and they obviously would benefit from that. So the purpose of a cartel is to try to either depending upon what the cartel wants to lower the price of oil by pumping more oil into the, into the market or 
cutting back on the production of oil to raise the price. Now, within OPEC, there's a lot of uh, differences on this, okay? country like Venezuela, which has a large population, needs high prices for oil. A country like Saudi Arabia, which is really the kingmaker, um, has a small population and doesn't need to have oil at that high price. So you can see the internal dynamics in a cartel. And ultimately, OPEC, basically, as the Saudis go... They all just want the highest possible price. Well, there's, there's a tendency to cheat. Uh, everyone agrees to cut back, and uh, one country says, "Oh, wait a minute! I'll just, I'll just increase slightly and take advantage of the high price, and carve out a greater market share." Okay, so cartels, why they fail is that there's a tendency for countries within the cartel to cheat, to take advantage of the inflated price, to increase their 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 country's global market share. Okay. So ultimately, this is kind of what we're, what's, what's happening. So last month, at the beginning of March, uh, OPEC and Russia met, uh, looking at down the future, seeing the price of oil decline, and the, all the countries in OPEC and Russia had a desire to try to stabilize the price of oil. And all of them wanted to then, obviously, uh, limit production cut production so as the, the price of oil would not go would the would would not go down does that make sense uh-huh. so ultimately in this discussion though uh which really took place between saudi arabia and russia now remember they're the two largest players in the oil exporters in the world okay and the russians wanted the saudis to cut back the logic being if the saudis cut back Price goes up. We haven't cut back. We increase our global market share. The Saudis wanted the Russians to cut back and under the same argument here, okay? And both, contrary to what some of the news reporters in this country would say, both also felt that if they both cut back, American producers would gain a larger share of the market because they're not cutting back on their production. You can see the gamesmanship that that takes place here. Yeah. So ultimately, Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia, and 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 Russia could not come to an agreement. Okay. And ultimately, the Saudis basically said, "We'll just show you." So they flooded the market. Okay. And oil prices, as you see, going plummeted. to the store, to going to the <laughs> going to the gasoline station today, the price has plummeted. As I said, if I could find that place in New Orleans with 87 cents a gallon, I'd be there in a heartbeat. So, oh my gosh, it makes me want to fill up the trunk and the back seat. <laughs> right, right. So that's kind of in the situation we are today with the price of oil going down and down. Now, again, if you're an exporter of oil, even in the case of Saudi Arabia, where oil is cheap to get out of the ground. But you have to remember, the Saudis have kind of a welfare state. Everybody lives off oil revenues. So really, they have to maintain a a higher price to all of their redistributive programs. There's no income tax, and everybody gets gets an oil check. 
Which really is how the Saudi government derives the legitimacy that it has, right? By keeping- exactly, exactly. Well, it's kind of one big, uh, as I tell my Latin American politics class, uh, one uh, huge patron-client relationship. Yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, so yeah, the OPEC and Russia are going to meet again this coming, well, tomorrow, Thursday and Friday, again, to try to stabilize the price of oil. They have, again, both countries, although the Saudis seem to be working more closely with the Trump administration, the Russia has especially made comments that uh, we, we need to stabilize the price, but we don't want to give up our shares. We don't want the United States producers to take advantage of this. Okay. Now it's interesting. So I'm not sure what's going to happen. I, you know, in terms of will they come to, will it be a repeat of the early March or will they actually come to an agreement, at least in the short term to try to stabilize the price of oil? Now it is interesting that the Trump administration uh, the president has said that, you know, we have oil reserves in this country. In the, the United States is a net exporter, just just barely a net mm-hmm. exporter of oil. And we do keep uh, reserves on hand. And part of that purpose of those reserves is to try to, during a downtime, a bus cycle, to stabilize the price of oil for oil companies. Because, you know, you're talking about hundreds of employees losing jobs and things like that. I think everyone assumes that here. But it is interesting that the president has been lobbied by uh, companies like Exxon, ExxonMobil, and Chevron to kind of let the market ride it out because their production of oil is cheaper, okay? They can ride this out a little bit, whereas shale oil companies uh, have a really – Ask the president to intervene in the market, so to speak. Here, so you've got all this going on, and really, the real question is, you know, uh, so so it's kind of up in the air as to what's going to happen. Will it continue to fall, and so on and so forth? Now, the better question, which you know, with all that said, from as you indicated earlier when we first talked about this, Gene, is well. The consumer, you and I are sitting here and say, well, what's wrong with this? This is great, you know? Yeah, uh, except I'm not going anywhere. And so my <laughs> gas tank is still full. <laughs> yes, yes. Mine <laughs> Which is, is also a relevant point, right? Absolutely. As, as, you know, globally, not just the U.S., but globally, so many folks are on lockdown. We're not consuming. As That's much. right. That's exactly right. You know, the Trump administration can intervene or not, depending on, you know, the pressures and and whatever guidance. But the fact is, globally, demand is still going to be down. That's exactly right. Just China. It is interesting. I read a couple of reports, one put out by the International Energy Agency and one put out by the Hoover Institute, which is a rather conservative uh, think tank. Okay, Uh U.S. based. But they looked at the declining price of of gasoline and oil and energy in the United States during this bust cycle, so to speak. And the question they ask, is this good or bad for America as a whole? Well, for consumers, it's good. For oil producers, it's bad. But what is the net effect? Now, again, I'm not an oil analyst, but both reports make the point arguing that the gains to consumers 
is outweighed by the losses to the producers. So the economy as a whole, as a whole, in terms mm-hmm. of economic growth and so on, is going to be hurt by this decline. At least that's that's the initial argument that for for the stabilization stabilization of oil prices here. Um, so as I said, it's yeah, going to be interesting. Really- Go ahead. We don't really need the economy hurt by more right now. Right, right. So again, and and uh, but both report both both uh, uh, studies uh, clearly said as a whole. You know, if you divide it up, clearly consumers benefit here and producers lose, but the losses outweigh the gains as a whole, and the U.S. economy is hurt by this. At least that that's that's their argument. So you know at. at it's going to be interesting to see um, what what can the Saudis and the Russians actually come to some agreement to try to stabilize oil, and then what be the reaction of the Trump administration um, in terms of in terms of uh, maybe helping one group, the shale oil producers, um, uh, versus uh, the more established. Producers like Exxon Mobil and and Chevron and so on. So it, it's worthy of watching. But you know, um, uh, it, it, it as I said, it's going to be interesting interesting to see over the next few days. But you know, I, I'm at home. I'm not filling up my tank every day. So, but I do know it. it from my I'm perspective, I'm obviously at home too. <laughs> from my perspective, uh, this is a good thing. Although clearly, the the studies, at least so far, would indicate that. As a whole, this could hurt the American economy. It's hard to, I mean, pluses and minuses. We Obviously, we don't want the economy more harmed. But when you think about the tremendous pain at the individual level that people are experiencing now with, you know, lost jobs and um, all that, that goes with that, the thought that, you know, they might be getting one little break on gas prices. Is no, I agree. I agree. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, it's sure. but like all things, it's complicated. It is. Nothing is black and white. Yeah. Nothing is black. As my mentor used to tell me, the world is technicolor, Cliff. So anyway, <laughs> I tend to go for a million shades of gray, but I like technicolor better. <laughs> I used to say gray too, but till he told me that no, the world is technicolor. It's not black and white. So anyway, oh good. <laughs> Okay, well, the International Power Hour, uh, I think we'll take a short break and be right back. Welcome back to the International Power Hour. This is Jean Epstein here with Cliff Staten. We have been doing a uh, news news forum of non-coronavirus news. It's sort of um, a relief to talk about something else. <laughs> it's impinged a couple times, but mostly, mostly not. Um, so, Jean, uh, we have... Uh... I just spoke a little bit about oil prices, but let's kind of go to another part of the world uh, where uh, we have been in Afghanistan, where uh, we have uh, reduced some of our troop presence in Afghanistan. That was a campaign promise made by uh, the Trump administration. But recent events, which again, kind of with the coronavirus going on, you, it is kind of under the radar, so to speak, and deal with something with the International Criminal Court. Would you like to talk about that? Yeah. So, I mean, Afghanistan has bubbled into the news. Um, Also, uh, just in the news 
this morning, uh, the the peace agreement uh, right. between the U.S. and the Taliban uh, that we talked about, um, a, 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 I think about a month ago, I think we did talk about that on the show, um, is uh, falling apart. Uh, the Afghanistan government was supposed to negotiate with the Taliban and they were supposed to do prisoner releases, uh, both sides, and that's not happening. And the U.S. is accusing the Taliban of not following through and the Taliban is, you know, making its own accusations and the U.S. is threatening to cut aid to Afghanistan um, for this year and next. And so we see, um, you know, we see a real deterioration there or at least, you know, nothing positive coming from the Taliban-U.S. agreement, at least thus far. Well, but, I think I think many when I think when we talked about that expected. earlier, many people expect didn't expect this to be a, much of a follow through on it anyway. Yeah, um, I mean, you kind of have to hope because this has been a long war. Um, right, absolutely long for us, but also longer for the people who've been living there and who da- whose daily lives are still affected by the violence in ways that you know we're not. But um, there's another event that um, transpired just about a month ago, actually, that um, were the coronavirus not going on would have attracted, I think, um, a tremendous amount of attention. And that is um, the International Criminal Court authorized um, an investigation by um, a judicial investigation um, to, uh, to uh, investigate and prosecute war crimes, including crimes against. So that um, sorry, that's what the the that's what the International Criminal Court does. They investigate and prosecute war crimes. Um, war crimes, crimes against humanity, crimes against humanity, genocide, um. stuff like that. But um, the the court uh, authorized an investigation. Um, Again, right about a month ago for for war crimes and crimes against humanity that were alleged against a variety of actors in the Afghanistan conflict, including um, Afghan government forces, including the Taliban, but also including U.S. troops and U.S. uh, foreign intelligence operatives. And um, this is the first time that um, the court's prosecution unit has been cleared, authorized to investigate um, U.S. uh, forces. And this is a big deal. Um, It it really does set it on a collision course with the Trump administration. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, it would have been a collision course with any U.S. administration because um, the U.S. has... Well, I mean, we did participate in um, the negotiations that formed the International Criminal Court. And I do want to give just a teeny bit of background on that because I'm guessing like that would be helpful. Yes. yes, Yeah. Most people probably don't even know. So the International Criminal Court was created by the international community um, in order to, you know, enhance a, um, you know, orderly world where, um, you know, international law can be applied and, you know, provide rules of the road and keep folks in their lanes. Um, and it was, it was created to deal with, um, you know, really the most egregious crimes, again, crimes against humanity, genocide, stuff like that. Um, after, uh, 
some of the early 1990s genocides, like the Bosnian genocide, the Rwandan genocide, um, those were dealt with in at by ad hoc tribunals. But you know, such problems just kept coming up, and so the international community decided to create a standing court to address those those instances. Um, and so the Inter- international criminal court was created. It came into force um, in the early 2000s. Um, so it's coming up in a few years on its 20th birthday. Um, and it has been a subject of, of considerable controversy. Now, I do want to I do want to um, emphasize that it is a court of last resort, which is to what say, does that mean? Yeah, and that is to say, if a, if a country um, is able and willing, both being key features there, able and willing to um, to investigate and, the, and then potentially prosecute um, its own offenders, then the International Criminal Court will not be, be involved. Um, and so, you know, countries that have a strong judicial system and, um, you know, strong human rights principles that are willing and able to follow through and do their own investigations um, should not be subject to ICC. Right, right. U.S. generally has... Go ahead. And typically when the U.S. sends troops abroad, they negotiate with the host government an absolute agreement that our troops would not be hauled into local courts for uh, uh, crimes, quote, crimes against humanity, right. or crimes committed. Uh, and that, that was part of one of the reasons why uh, the Obama administration pulled out of Iraq. Iraq, uh, exactly that. Because uh, they yep. would, Iraq would not agree to that. And so yeah. he, he, he uh, pulled troops out. So, yes, a court of last resort. So, yeah. And I mean, generally, the U.S. has has addressed this. There have been, <clears throat> excuse me, um, you know, a number of uh, U.S. service personnel accused of various quite heinous crimes. Um, and those have been adjudicated and, you know, they have resulted in some convictions. Um, and so, you know, the U.S. is generally we have considered ourselves beyond this and, and also the U S government position. And this is across administrations. You know, you just mentioned Obama. We have been singularly unwilling to, you know, consider our ourselves, our personnel subject right. to international criminal court um, jurisdiction. <sighs> but this, this, this particular uh, investigation focuses on the years 2003 and four, correct? Right. Um, and uh, <clears throat> the ICC appeals court judge um, indicated that there was information that um, members of the U.S. military and intelligence agencies, um, and we need to think about, you know, where the U.S. was at that point. That's right. That's right. Yes. Uh, uh, Quote, committed acts of torture, cruel treatment, outrages upon personal dignity, rape and sexual violence against conflict-related detainees in Afghanistan and other locations 
yeah, principally in the 2003 to 2004 period. So that was a time when, um, you know, our policy was torture. Yes, this was our struggle, our war on terrorism. And part of that was to gather intelligence. And as everyone should know by now, the Bush administration okayed uh, extraordinary types of of uh, methods uh, that yes. go beyond um, virtually anything that we would allow ever in the United States or typically allow anywhere. Uh, Found a but nice this- name and didn't call it torture because that's a violation of U.S. law. Um, and yes, and there's clear evidence. Interrogation we- tactics was right. the phrase, right? right. Um, but subsequently, investigations um, by Congress, uh, you know, of CIA behavior, I mean, ha- has made it clear that that was torture. Um, right. I mean. And ultimately, the Obama administration ended the program. Yes. Um, and that has actually been a problem with, um, you know, like adjudicating the uh, Guantanamo Bay detainees. Exactly. As victims of torture, um, you know, the information that was extracted, uh, you know, that's, there are so many mitigating circumstances there that that has led to a lot of problems dealing with, with Guantanamo Bay being able to close it, which has been a desire um, and a campaign promise um, in the past. Um, and, and so this is all bound up with that, but this will be interesting to see how this plays out. Um, the U S response was um, statements of utter outrage uh, when the international criminal court announced its uh, decision and um, you know, there, I mean, there's no question that we will not play ball. And um, you know, but you know, it is interesting mm-hmm. though. They, they, they. It was kind of an equal opportunity investigation. It wasn't just investigating. It's not just investigating the United States. It's Taliban oh, no, it's every, excesses. Every- it's Afghan government excesses. I mean, it, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, yeah, we're just in with the pack. Um, but, uh, you know, it's hard to imagine that we would take this really. And the U S has, uh, generally the power to ignore a lot of things. And my suspicion is this administration will, will ignore this completely. Except for condemning it. Yeah. There certainly wouldn't be any cooperation or anything like that. Right. Exactly. Exactly. But it would, um, it is noteworthy, I think, and it, and, and it certainly would have gotten a lot more attention had, uh, you know, we not been in the throes of a pandemic. That's exactly right. Yes. So, um, something else that we've talked about on and off for quite some time that uh, has not gotten as much attention as it would had we not been in the midst of a global pandemic uh, is the situation once again in Venezuela, where we have had new developments. So, um, you know, well, you know, we, we've talked a lot, terrorism. We've talked a lot about Venezuela, and I think most of our mm-hmm. listeners have a pretty good idea what's going on there. You have, yeah, there's uh, new stuff though. <laughs> uh, there's new stuff, but remember, Venezuela is the classic petro state. I talked yep. about oil earlier, and uh, this is a country that's so dependent upon oil that it runs virtually everything. And historically, political parties, whatever their stripe, have used uh, 
petrodollars uh, to pay off uh, to set up patron-client relationships to uh, run the country virtually every way. But anyway, so and 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 you currently have a government clearly an authoritarian government that's abused, done every type of abuse you can imagine towards its population that is outcast from the bulk of the world. And <clears throat> it has ended with an economy or still going on an economy that is hyperinflation. That's not producing goods that people need. And you've had this massive outflow of migration, four to 5 million people uh, going to neighboring countries, Colombia, Peru, Ecuador, uh, Brazil. And now, well, not only has the bottom completely fallen out of the oil market, but you've also got, uh, of course, the U.S. has put a lot of pressure on this government. Um, and so, and we, of and course, do not, we, don't, we don't leaders. recognize the Maduro government. We recognize Juan Guaido, who is the, um, who is the uh, technically, uh, depends upon which National Assembly you recognize, is the Speaker of the National Assembly. And we recognize it as with 60 or more other countries as the legitimate president. Yeah. So we're putting a lot of pressure on this country, sanctions against the, the government leaders and so on. And they're kind of at a stalemate at this point. Uh, the Maduro government still has the strong and firm support of the military. And as long as it has that, it's going to remain in power. But outside the city, the capital city of Caracas, uh, you've got utter chaos, basically. Opposition, while many support Guaido, there is a, uh, the opposition historically has been very uh, fragmented against, against the Maduro government and to his advantage, obviously, when that happens. In fact, uh, uh, an opposition group in the National Assembly actually elected someone else as Speaker of the National Assembly to oppose Guaido. So all kinds of things going on. And so the U.S. government has been putting a lot of pressure, sanctions against them. So recently, um, we, uh, the U.S. Department of Justice indicted Maduro and many of uh, many of his inner circle. I think there were fourteen, like more than members, a dozen, yeah, uh, uh, on narco-terrorism charges, uh, <laughs> drug trafficking, money laundering, and corruption. Okay, and so we have, uh, and I think the state of New York is ready to bring charges against them as well. Um, they um, they basically have argued that the government has created uh, this uh, so-called cartel of the sun, and I'll talk just a little bit about that. But uh, as a criminal enterprise engaging in, in is that narco-terrorism is drugs associated with terrorism. That would mean targeting American citizens, which and there's not a whole lot of evidence of that. But nonetheless, mm. uh, this is, again, part of our, uh, we accuse them of working with some of the distant FARC rebels in Colombia. The FARC is a revolutionary group that recently signed a peace treaty, but some of the FARC members ha have have backed out of that in Colombia. So the argument is that uh, uh, the Maduro administration is working with these folks. Now, these are not new charges. Right. The Obama administration has char charged the Maduro uh, uh, government with this. And so what is new is this narco-terrorism charge. And um, go ahead. I, did you have a question, Gene? Oh, no, 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 no. Yeah. I mean, like, 
That's that's a develop. That seems a development. So the argument is that uh, they basically argue that Maduro and his inner circle is the head of this quote cartel of the sun. Now, typically, when we think of uh, illegal drugs, uh, Americans think of uh, the old Medellin cartel mm-hmm. and the Cali cartel and the cartels in Mexico that run run the drug trade. And a uh, cartel is kind of this this. Uh, where we kind of connect the dots between organized groups and uh, they create this entity that is focused on illegal, illegal cocaine or, or drug trafficking. Okay. And so the interesting thing, and I've read a couple of, there's a, uh, there's a journalist by the name of Zorado Zavala who does a lot of research on cartels and, and the drug trade and so on and so forth. And he argues, and I read a couple of his articles on this just after this come out. He said, he said, that when we really we uh, Americans like to think of cartels as being a pyramid structure and very organized. A different kind of cartel than OPEC. Just oh to, yes, yes, yes. I'm sorry. Yes. Since we've used that <laughs> term in two different contexts, I just thought I would. Point. That makes sense. Basically, a criminal organization with a top-down leadership. Okay, but he argues, and his research is very persuasive, that the Kali. The one most of the Cali cartel and the Medellin cartel and the others in Mexico aren't as hierarchical as you think. Okay, Mm -hmm. that we often do that to kind of make sense of what's going on. And his argument is that this cartel of the sun, which, by the way, he are he's gone through all of the uh, DOJ reports. There's very little mention of this until last month. Okay, so. His argument is that, you know, they may be connecting the dots and creating this 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 organization that technically really doesn't exist. Now, he's not arguing that the the, that the Venezuelans aren't involved in drug trafficking. They probably are. But he's saying that we've we've created this 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 cartel, this cartel of the sun. He says it's a convenient way to put charges against the current government. And and. So I guess there are a couple of ways. What about the terrorism aspect? Well, the terrorism aspect, which is what Zavallo and there's another center that I read on on cartels. There's a crime uh, think tank that looks at real evidence basing. The argument is that you have to be guilty of selling drugs to intimidate Americans and actually engaged in killing Americans. And and the argument there is that there's very little evidence to support this at this time. Now, there may yeah. be at the, at some point, but right now there's very little evidence to support that. Yeah. Okay. When I think about like the drug cartels in Mexico and what they have done to, you know, Mexican citizens, that is right. terrorism, right? I mean, absolutely. They, you intimidate absolutely the locals on the border, yeah. across the immediate border with the United States to yeah. cooperate with, with the, uh, and, and yeah. that's terrorism. That's exactly right. Yeah. There's really, so far, I emphasize so far, little evidence to support, to really support that. But this is, again, when you look at it, this is part of the ongoing campaign of the Trump administration to basically try to topple the Venezuelan government. And the U.S. sent warships too, right? Yes, uh, warships, uh, the Southern Command. Uh, Just within to, the last like week. Yes, kind of, yeah. again, uh, more of, I think, more of a show of force. Mm-hmm. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, to try, again, to put more and more pressure on the Maduro government 
to step down. At the same time, we also uh, made an offer to actually lift sanctions. So here's a carrot and stick at work here in terms of right. U.S. foreign policy, uh, that if they would, if Maduro would step down and have elections within the next year, and they would put up a, a transitionary council, which both Maduro and Guido, Guido would not be a member of, then we would actually drop, lift the sanctions. So, you know, you can see kind of a carrot and stick approach here. The, the, the narco-terrorism charges, which may be accurate, okay? I'm just pointing out that the evidence so far indicates kind of a weak support for that, okay? But at the same time, we're offering the carrot of, okay, the world is against you, except maybe China and Russia, who still supports the, the, Guaido, the, the uh, Maduro government. Um, if you step down, we will, we will end the sanctions against you. And clearly, a country that 95% of all their income is dependent upon oil, and oil production in Venezuela has almost come to a stop, basically. Yeah. So, uh, you know, uh, this, this would be an enticing... Um, 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 it, it try, again, trying to resolve this 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 terrible, terrible situation. And at the same time, coronavirus hitting Latin America in general as well. I mean, this is a global pandemic. And that great irony of all this, the four to five million people who left going to Colombia and other places trying to find jobs now, right. now who fled <clears throat> now because there are no jobs there. Actually, there's been many of them going back, actually going back to Venezuela and clearly facing even more danger there. So this is well, and people moving around, right? That helps spread contagion. Absolutely. Absolutely. God knows Venezuela is not in any sort of shape to I mean, the degree of poverty there with, you know, oil production virtually having halted and the whole economy hinging on oil production. I mean, that is a that is a dire, desperate, desperate place. And so, you know, trying to imagine them mustering the resources to care for, you know, the ill in a global pandemic. I mean, that's right. There will be so, a lot of people who die there. You know, uh, while we weren't Terrible. supposed to talk about the coronavirus no, pandemic, it, 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 it seeps into a lot of our discussion. There, that, It just shows you or illustrates what you and I try to teach in our classes is that, you know, the, the world is oh, interconnected. It is interdependent, and you can't yep. escape that. Even if yep. you may want to, you cannot escape that. Yep. Yeah, that's just reality. And I don't think you can turn the clock back on that. Um, just real quick at the end, because I'm looking at the clock and we are running out of time. Um, but, um, you know, more things that uh, are, are inescapably shaped by uh, the pandemic is uh, a tendency toward authoritarianism. The world, according yeah, we, to... We, we, we've, we've mentioned this before a yeah. little bit in terms of what's going on in terms of uh, initially kind of a reaction to immigration yep. in Europe, the rise of nationalist parties. So go ahead, Jean. Yeah. So, um, I mean, it, it is, it is uh, clearly an unusual time in the world <laughs> and countries, you know, from less democratic to more democratic um, have clearly had to take extreme actions to try to uh, 
control the pandemic. But one thing that we have seen uh, really around the globe, China got a lot of attention by locking down Wuhan so tightly, um, but far beyond that and, and in a lot of different places, uh, we have seen uh, authoritarian leaders really use this health crisis to expand their authoritarian powers. And as I was starting to say a minute ago, we have seen the rise of authoritarianism around the globe, uh, according to Freedom House rankings and and ratings, um, for some years now. Democracy has been in decline for the last, you know, handful of years. But, um, you know, authoritarian leaders especially um, will often seize opportunities that present themselves to expand their power. Um, or, or what I like to call populist leaders in democracies will use it. Yes. Um, and, and we have seen actually the expansion of authoritarianism again across all kinds of, of political systems. Um, we have seen um, expanded uh, powers in China, obviously, I just mentioned in Thailand, which is was once on the path to democracy, but has had in tr- incredible backsliding since a military coup there. Um, Cambodia, Bangladesh, Turkey, all of these places have detained journalists, opposition activists, healthcare workers, anybody who has criticized uh, the government's response to the pandemic, um, you know, in those places, they have been, uh, you know, jailed. And, you know, that's less surprising in less democratic systems. But one thing that's noteworthy is that we have seen a uh, dramatic uh, expansion of government power um, in a member of the European Union, one that has been on the EU's uh, list for eroding democracy for the last several years. Yeah, specifically Hungary. Um, And uh, what's happened there is actually is is quite dramatic. Um, The... uh, the, the president of Hungary, Viktor Orban, um, has uh, essentially, you know, already uh, manipulated the electoral system such that Hungary was becoming what we call an illiberal democracy, which is illiberal, let me say that a little bit more clearly, where you have the appearances of democracy, you have regular elections and such, um, but the the way that things play out is that the democracy becomes largely a shell. Um, and so, as part of that, uh, Orban and his Fidesz party had managed to control a very significant supermajority in the Hungarian parliament. Um, and so uh, when Orban uh, recently asked for asked the parliament for expanded executive powers, they gave him a big thumbs up um, and allowed, uh, passed a law allow, giving the Orban powers to rule by decree um, with no time limit on that. And that is uh, a tremendous, a tremendous increase in power and really removes any sort of no checks and balances balances that we expect in a democracy. 
Exactly. Um, there was opposition. Um, more than 100,000 people signed a petition um, against the measures before they were passed. Um, and certainly, uh, you know, European, other EU members um, have expressed concern. There was a group of 13 EU member states uh, that said that they were, quote, deeply concerned, end quote, um, uh, you know, somebody suggested that the EU should kick out Hungary. Um, the EU really doesn't have provisions for that. Um, EU provisions, democracy is a requirement for EU membership. Um, but um, the provisions that they have is that uh, basically a country that, uh, you know, offends democratic principles too far will be um, deprived of powers within the EU, but that in good EU tradition requires uh, a unanimous decision. And there's another country that has followed Hungary right down the path toward illiberalism, uh, which is Poland. And basically, um, there have been efforts to invoke this um, EU sanction against both Poland and Hungary um, in recent years because of various things that they've done. And, you know, uh, Hungary blocks the sanctions against Poland, Poland blocks the sanctions against Hungary. And so the EU is kind of over the barrel. Um, there's nothing in the EU treaties to uh, provide grounds for expulsion. So the EU is really being shown to be quite quite powerless in this context. Um, you know, for all those who, who complain about the massive e EU overreach and how, uh, you know, it robs countries of their ability, members of their ability to do anything, like this really shows what a... It shows that sovereignty is still alive and well. Absolutely. Um, but, but, I mean, this is a really good and, and, and also deeply concerning illustration of, of just... Uh, how far a country um, can go uh, in terms of escalating authoritarianism um, and using a crisis to do that. Because once you've got emergency powers with no time limit, what are they going to do to get them back? Right. Exactly. Ruling by exactly. decree basically means that Viktor Orban can get up in the morning and say, here's a new law, and then it's law. And, you know, Gene, the interesting thing about that is, and again, I'm not familiar enough with Eastern Europe to comment completely, but a lot of times the situations that there are large segments of the population that support that at the time. Polls indicate quite a bit of support for this, actually, yeah. Um, now, you know, opinion polling in authoritarian societies is often right. tricky, um, but that is also a reality of crisis, is that people want um, stability, want uh, their government to be able to respond to the crisis. They want the appearance of somebody taking charge and solving the problem. Exactly. Um, and, you know, a lot of people are, are, you know, rightfully frightened by the coronavirus and think the government should do what it needs to do to protect them. And so, yeah, there was a lot of, um, there, the polls suggested that there was quite a bit of support for this. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, Five years down the road, that might be another question. Exactly. Even a year down the road. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, democratic norms and principles that even in established countries can, during times of crisis, people, uh, people and leaders, uh, th those sometimes go by the wayside. 
They do. And um, they can also be hard to claw back when the crisis has passed. And so, um, I mean, it really is a, it really is a tricky dance. Um, Obviously, uh, you know, governments need the authority to be able to respond to a crisis, but at the same time, you know, in a democracy, democratic principles of oversight and checks and balances still need to hold. Exactly. Exactly. And can't, um, you know, in countries, especially, you know, you, you look at Eastern European countries under communism, so on, democratic institutions are still weak. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, so that that doesn't help in a situation like this, as opposed to Western democracies whose institutions are strong and typically can weather these types of things. Yeah, typically. So. It's been interesting this week to watch the British with um, oh my, yes. Johnson in the hospital in intensive care, uh, you know, Pat, Pat, he, he got to decide who was second in command because they don't have provisions for that. Um, that, that I, I wasn't aware of that. That's amazing yeah. that he can just by himself do that. Uh, he wow. chose not to designate uh, a deputy prime minister. And so it's left a lot of people wondering uh the foreign minister who boris johnson decided as he was going to the you know intensive care to put in put in control uh you know as somebody who doesn't have a ton of government leadership experience he's right as only been foreign secretary for a few months um so i haven't heard this morning is johnson doing any better so okay okay last i heard was was well i guess it was this morning uk time because i was up late last night and they said he had had a good night okay Um, but uh i saw some data and we said we wouldn't talk about the coronavirus and here i go again uh i i saw some data out of the uk um the uk health system suggesting that uh of people who are put in intensive care the 48 percent didn't make it um and i'm you know, I'm I'm guessing that Johnson will get the absolute best of care, and he probably has better. Oh, time. I'm sure he will. But that is an uh, extremely concerning statistic. Yes, um, it is. And, uh, you know, like you, you can give somebody excellent care, and um, you still may lose them to this virus because exactly viruses exactly. don't respect power viruses don't respect boundaries viruses don't respect much um so yeah it's a yeah but even in britain like there are all these questions and that's obviously a well-established democracy so a place like hungary where um you know democratic norms are much less deeply rooted uh, right or precarious situation all right um i'm looking at the clock and i think we've gone a little bit long but that's okay (laughs) Um, so thank you to our listeners for uh, joining us and our and everybody stay safe out there you hear me yeah stay home you too Jean (laughs) (laughs) the international power hour will be back next week thank you for listening